Welcome to Elite Team Athletics Podcast. I got my guy Q in here. I'm your host, Kyle Coglatore, and we have the pleasure of having three-time Natty Champ, one time as a player, two time as a coach, Coach Pat Miller with us today. How's it going, Coach? It's going great. How are you guys? Doing well. Can't complain. How's the pandemic going for you? You know, it's actually, uh, it hasn't been too bad for me. Uh, the thing I do probably the most outside of work and family is golf, and our golf courses have been open for quite a while, so I probably have more rounds in now than I've had, you know, typically the whole summer. That's awesome. So, you, you have to tell me some pointers. I need to get my golf game figured out. Yeah, just don't play. It's just expensive. It takes a lot of time. That's the best, best pointer. Take it up when you're about 30. You'll be good. <laughs> no, an old team or an old uh, player of yours, Alec Murd, am I saying that right? Yep. He wants to know what your thoughts are on Duncan Robinson because you got to see him up front and now he's playing in, for the Miami Heat. And he really wants to know what you're thinking about, about his game. You know, I think it's a credit to him when, when he was a freshman and we played against him, he, he was clearly talented and he had good size, you know, high skill level, you know, as a shooter, you know, when you shoot the ball at the efficiency he does, you can increase your level beyond your athleticism. But the question mark for him was, was he going to be able to be strong enough and physical enough? And he did a great job with his body. Uh, I think a player like him, he has to understand exactly what his role is and, and what he can do and can't do, and he did a great job with that. And when I watched him at Williams, I thought he was good. I, I certainly thought he was a scholarship player. Uh, I didn't really envision him being a pro, so I think that's a credit to him as to how he developed and developed his body and his understanding of, the, of his game. His story is amazing. It is amazing. You know, his coach, his coach lives right up in um, Northfield. His wife works at St. Olaf, his uh, coach from Williams. No kidding. no kidding. Yeah, Mike Maker. Great guy. I didn't know that. That's awesome. We're going to have to try to get him on the show. Yeah. Get he'd some be, more insight. Yeah. He worked for Beeline. That's how uh, Duncan Robinson ended up there. So he was an assistant for Beeline, um, part of that tree, and, and that's how he ended up at Michigan. That's awesome. That's very cool. Um, another question from a player that I'm going to leave unnamed that I want to bring up right away. Yes. And, and I don't want you to be in trouble or get anybody in trouble or upset, but he says, how do you plan on turning things around at Whitewater right now, going 2-12 and 12 in the WIAC last year? Because that ish is not cutting it, is what he said. No, it was, it was bad. It was, um, you know, we've had years where everything fell together, you know, a perfect storm of good things happening. And, you know, we've had years where we've been good and, done well and, and had different struggles and this was really the first time in my career probably the second time in whitewater we had one similar situation when i was an assistant where it was just a perfect storm of everything being bad you know certain players didn't live up to expectations our chemistry was not great the buy-in was not great the culture was not great um you know so the obvious answer is we're, we're going to change that you know we, you know we graduated some guys uh, other guys are not going to be back um, we've been really selective in our recruiting very specific types of guys that are going to fit well with the core group. We, we feel like we have a decent core back. And as bad as our record was, we were in a lot of those games. You know, I think we lost 12 games by five or less points. We lost a bunch by one or two. But the bottom line is we lost. Mm -hmm. And part of the, the reason you lose close games 
and they're close at the end is because of your dysfunction. So it was a team that just refused to understand and value little things. And, and Cordell knows that how much we talk about valuing little things, doing the detailed things. And they just went by in at uh, keep teams around. We'd be in close games and we couldn't execute well enough down the stretch to win games. And I think that's a major difference between them and our, and our better teams is those teams elevated their execution down the stretch where this team couldn't do it. Um, so we were just good enough to stay in games, but um, trust me, it was an unacceptable year and, you know, it's not sitting well with me and, and there will be, there will be changes. That's got to light a fire though. You got to be excited about making those changes, implementing them, right? I am, you know, we, we, we it's almost like a, a rebuilding process and, and you don't want to ever have that. You know, one of my goals in coaching was to never have a losing season. Um, so it's disappointing that, that that's off the table. But like I said, we, we had a good freshman class and we're going to salvage some guys out of there. We've had a really good recruiting class. Our junior senior classes are still a little thin, but we're still in the hunt for a couple junior college guys, maybe a potential transfer. So I think we can get healthy relatively quickly, but we don't want to take shortcuts. We definitely want to bring in the right guys and complementary pieces. And, you know, I felt for so long we had such a great culture and that is, is, we did not have that this year. So that, that's really an area we have to address. So it's not only to bring in guys, but to bring in the right guys. Of course. You know, talking about the right guys, I don't know if you watched The Last Dance. All of, all of America was. Of course I did. <laughs> yeah. That's my era. You know, that's when I was at. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you, you know, Dennis Rodman, being the character that he was, have you ever had a player that fit that role on and off the court? Not, not to that degree, um, but, I, but I think most sports organizations have had people like that. And, and you know, the, the, the thing is, how do you manage it? And, and when you talk about culture, you look at who the Bulls had, and they had mature guys, and they wanted to win. That was their singular purpose. So I'm not sure they, they, they loved what he did but they loved what he did on the floor. I mean, he, he was a great rebounder. He was a great defender. Another thing I think he was great at, he doesn't get enough credit for, is he was an amazing outlet passer. Um, not only would he rebound the ball, he'd get it out, he'd get him into transition. And they'd lack that physicality, you know, as they were building to their championship years, and, and he provided that. And so, you know, there's a difference between condoning something and saying, okay, we understand this is Dennis. And Dennis is going to be Dennis, and if we can allow that and he still functions and he can help us win, we'll be fine with that. And, and I think one of the things that was pretty stark in my view of that is how different the mentality is. You know, that is a harder thing to, to navigate now because everyone's concerned about, well, that's not fair. He did this. I didn't get to do this. I got in trouble for this. He didn't do that. And so those situations are difficult to navigate. But I, I think um, – you can look through all the pro sports and you'll see example after example of guys like that, that were extraordinarily talented, probably didn't do things the right way all the time, but if they performed and they helped their teams win, they were able to deal with them. Acceptance, figure out a way to accept that. Right. And, and, and you know, it's a, it's a sliding scale. If you have a guy that's a, a complete clown and he can't bring enough to the table to make you successful, then, then it's a big problem. So I, I think, you know, if coaches were honest, they would say, okay, how much of an issue is this guy as opposed to how much he brings to the table? 
And there's a point where, you know, I would even argue like someone like Colin Kaepernick. I just think there's, there's too much of a circus surrounding him to make him feasible to bring in. You know, I just don't think he's good enough to overcome all the media, all the distraction, all the issues that come with that. Um, but I, as I said, I think there's clearly guys that are good enough to put up with quite a bit. And you, and you see that. And Rob was one of those guys. Did you have any specific guys like that? Uh, we've had guys that, you know, you know, a guy that Cordell played with. And um, I love KJ, so I don't mind talking about him. You know, KJ would never be accused of, you know, working too hard in the weight room. Um, he, he, he'd like to do his own thing to an extent, but as, in his own way, he bought in. And, and he played, when it was time to play, he played extraordinarily hard, extraordinarily hard. He was a competitor. And, you know, I think that's one of the things I've always done reasonably well is been able to deal with guys that don't act or do exactly what they're supposed to do. Understanding, okay, how much latitude can you give them? When is it too much? And, and you have to reel it in. But, but I think KJ is an example. We have had guys like that that were great players, didn't want to lift weights, um, you know, were maybe weren't great at studying tape. Uh, but when it came time to playing, they were elite competitors, and, and KJ was the MVP of the Final Four and um, played great basketball for us. But I think Cordell, you could chime in on that. I'm not sure if he would be your cho poster child of how you do things day in and day out. I mean, he definitely, uh, you know, came to play every time. You know, you, you could, he was someone you could depend on, you know, to always get the rebound. That's one thing, you know, he was like the Rodman on defense for us defensively for rebounds, but he, he snagged a lot of them. I, I remember there was one situation where he told one of our players, uh, if the rebound comes towards me, let me get it. I don't know how that sat with the other player, but, you know, he, he always played, you know, all out. So, you know, we, we were grateful for that. But it's just different mentalities. You know, one of the things he said that, that was that was funny, I'll never forget, is when guys would break down, they'd do something wrong, I'd stop practice and correct it. And we had stopped it a number of times in a row, and he just spoke up, and he goes, Coach, just stop. You know, it's not going to be perfect the way you want it every time. Just let us play. You know, so there's that little fight in between, between KJ wanting just to play and me saying, no, KJ, we're not playing like that. We're going to have to do these things better, um, where I'm not sure very many guys would have uh, stood up and made that comment in the middle of practice. But that, that was KJ. Take some cojones. <laughs> yeah, well, he had those, for sure. <laughs> so how, with, with dysfunction like that, how do you keep a team, you know, playing together coherently and, and being successful? How do you do that as a coach? I think it's, it's about understanding. You know, we've always had diversity on our team and, and not just diversity and racial diversity, but diversity in background, diverse, diversity in socioeconomic background. And I think it's really important we talk about that and that people understand where people have come from. And, and you know, I, the story I always tell, I was a first-year teacher in Harvard, Illinois, teaching government and social studies. And I had a student in my class who was just a colossal pain. You know, it was like I spent 80% of my time dealing with this one kid. And, and it was a struggle for me, and, and I wasn't particularly fond of the kid. And then we had our first round of parent-teacher conferences, and I met his parents. Yep. And it, I did a 180 perspective on the kid um, because his parents were such a disaster. It changed my, you know, how I viewed the kid, what I knew he was dealing with at home, why he acted the way he did, and 
by understanding his background, it, it gave me more acceptance of him and more of a willingness to work with him. And, and I think that's important for, for players and team members to understand where guys are from, how they've been coached, uh, what their challenges may be, what their struggles may be, and, and then work with that. And one of the things I tell our guys is, you know, we're going to treat everyone fairly, but that doesn't mean we're going to treat you all equally because different players require different things. So I've had players that, you know, Cordell was one of them, just extraordinarily low maintenance. He did what he was asked to do. He improved. He worked hard. I've had players that have been fairly high maintenance and everything in between. So it's just understanding those differences and, and working together for a common, a common cause. And it's, it's never a smooth process, but I think over the years we've been able to, to do it fairly well and it's been a successful process. And I, I actually think it helps guys in their lives because you rarely get in situations where everything's going to be perfect and you're going to like everyone or understand everyone. And that background helps you, you know, establish those skills when you get out into the world that, you know, you're going to have to make some concessions. It can't always be about you and you have to try to understand where people are coming from. You know, from our few moments of talking, I can tell you're very cool and calm, you know, and collected for the most part. Have you ever gotten to the point where you wanted to wring a player's neck, though? That's, that's another question. There's all these questions from former players that they really want to know about you. So They're not going to dog anybody and throw it out there, but, but they want to know that. I am. Um, so the, the direct question from Patrick Suter. He said, what player did you want to fuck up the most while coaching? Meaning whose ass did you really want to kick if you could? Um, so that was, that's an easy one. So we were playing at Eau Claire, uh, one of my all-time favorite players, Giovanni Riley. Um, we had the ball, we were up, and he threw a backwards cross-court pass that they stole and went in for a layup, and I met him at about half court. And... Um, Thankfully, I had a, a moment of zen because that was about as close as I've ever come. And him and I talk about that, too. We still laugh about it. But, no, you know, that's part of the fun of this. It's an, it's an intense game and, and playing a great conference, and you have those, those games. But, uh, and Gio was an intense guy, so Q knows him. But that, that was the closest I've ever come. You were going to Bobby Knight him? You know, <laughs> I was just, I was upset. I don't think I would ever go to that extreme. It's not like I've ever literally had to hold myself back. I was just that particular time, because it's probably something I had covered with them about 4,000 times. So to have it happen in the, the clutch of a game on the road, I was probably not thrilled. Let, let's, let's reel things back and go back in time and talk about your playing career. You played at UW during 1986 to 1989. In the 88-89 season, you were co-captain of the team that won the national championship. Can you talk to me about that and the camaraderie of that team? Oh, there was great camaraderie. And, you know, you talk about having some guys, um, Rodman-like guys, we had that in that team. You know, we weren't very deep. Uh, and it's interesting, my, my junior year, we lost a couple of All-Americans. Um, we were beyond talented. Uh, we had a player who was Mr. Basketball in the state of Wisconsin. I think we might have had two, actually. And then we had another guy who was better than both of them. It, it was just a different era. And high-level guys, a lot of dysfunction, a lot of selfishness, you know, people not passing to each other. So we lose, lose all these guys, and I think we were picked seventh in the conference. And we, we had a, a very tight group, a tight nucleus. And the lesson I gained from that team is it's all about the parts, 
in that team, we had all the parts. We had a 6'9", physical athletic center who didn't need the ball, who was happy rebounding, defending, getting his looks when he got them. And then we had myself and another shooter on the wings that both, I think I shot 48% from three. He shot 49% from three, and we both made over 100. Um, so from an efficiency rating, you know, there was a lot of pain to be had. Then we had a 6'5 guy who's maybe one of the best athletes I've ever seen at Division Three. Ended up playing for the Globetrotters for quite a while, Albert Gordon, um, who would do things to this day that, that are mind-blowing. You know, he would catch lobs in midair and turn and reverse dunk them in games. He caught a ball one time. His hands were outside the backboard, and he carried it all the way to the basket and smashed it. I mean, the guy was an NBA athlete without question. Uh, and then we had a great point guard who got invited to the Bucks camp, 5'9 um, guy who was just a tenacious defender, great passer, tough guys. And, and then we had some younger guys that came in and support. So we, we really had a great combination of players. And then we had an, an enforcer. And um, he was a guy who was a senior, um, came off the bench, backup point guard, but he kept everyone in control. And, and it was very much about, okay, you know, Pat, your garden, you know, we're playing this team, your garden, their leading score. You don't have to score today. You just have to shut that guy down. Like, so everybody was very aware of what had to happen and, and he kept everyone in check. And in fact, there was a time in practice uh, where our Rodman um, prototype was, was a little out of control and they were chirping back and forth. And, and Claude Robinson was a senior. He basically said, looked at him and said, don't forget who you're talking to. And the conversation ended because that guy knew Claude was going to take care of business. So we, we had, you know, coaches always talk about leadership and getting guys to do things. If you don't have internal leadership, it's, it's an uphill battle at best. And that team had great internal leadership and people willing to accept their roles. So even though we weren't deep, we had enough talented and talent and we had the right parts. And I think we ran basically a basketball camp offense and I'm not exaggerating. And I, we led the country in scoring. So it's nothing that we did was fancy. We just had a good combination of players and moved the ball, and a lot of different people could score. What so helps, too. Oh, go ahead, Q. Uh, I was just going to say a little bit uh, about that coaching style. I know you were coached by, by Augie. How was his, his scheme then? Was he as, in, as in intense as he is in the, the camps that he, he's doing fundamentals? Or? Yeah, he, he's, he's intense. He's very intense, and he, he's almost like a – like you would picture an NBA coach mentality. You know, he, he was not rah-rah. He was not touchy-feely. There were no kumbaya meetings. You know, when he recruited me, I went to Platteville first and played for Bo Ryan and just did not like Platteville. Um, went to Madison the, the spring semester, thought about walking on there. And I visited Whitewater and he, you know, I went and played with their guys. And he basically said his whole recruiting pitch was you have one chance to play these are the guys we have that you'd have to beat out. Let me know if you're interested. And just that straightforwardness really appealed to me. Um, and I think that was part of it. We, we had a bunch of guys who were like that, that just, you know, went about their business. That's, you know, and his, it was very simple. You, you did what you're supposed to do and you had a chance to play. If you didn't, you didn't play. And it was amazing to me how, how many players who left the program didn't have success in the program would still recruit other players to come because at the end of the day, they knew they were treated fairly. And I thought that was one of his, you know, staples of, of his coaching is that he was very fair, very straightforward, 
And, um, you know, obviously that had a lot of impact on how I see things and how I want things to operate. That's, that's kind of ironic because as you were recruiting me to come to Whitewater and, you know, us getting there that fall, I, w- I was taking into consideration, like, damn, we have, you know, 25 freshmen coming in, like who's really going to stick around to the end. And obviously going through that season, we know who, who ended up finishing. Right. And, and a lot of times we know too. And, and part of it is you have a high school coach who says, Hey, this kid's a great kid. Will you give him an opportunity you know, there's all kinds of different things, but as a coach, you, you're pretty aware of who your key people are going to be. You know, you, you, weren't, you weren't in danger, Q. We, we knew you were good. Oh, I wasn't worried about it. <laughs> I, I knew I was going to make it. I, it was tough at first. I'm like, geez, these workouts are something, something new. My body, I don't know about it, but I, there was no doubt in my mind. I was, I was never going to quit. Couldn't happen. Right, but the, and part of that is because guys don't listen. So every freshman we've ever had, you know, it's, it's a little different now because guys lift more, but that's a big jump is the physicality of going from high school to college. And no one believes that until they get there. So they, they rarely prepare accordingly. Once they get in the thralls of it, then they figure out, man, I better start lifting. I better start doing X, Y, and Z to, to compete. Yeah, I've never been so sore. Shout out to uh, Lee Munger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were talking about how you guys led the country in scoring. You personally, it, it helps when you're scoring a lot. You're averaging 17 points a game. But to me, the crazy part is you're shooting 50% from three. That's absurd. It, it was absurd. And, you know, part of it was we got great looks because, it, you know, the, the, our Albert Gordon, the inside guy, I, I mean, so our point guard, they had a little thing between them where he would just come down and not even hardly look and he'd just throw the ball up and he would just go up and, and get it and dunk it. Like if, you, if you watch the first eight minutes of our national championship game against Trenton State, who uh, had the all-time leading score in Division Three history, Greg Grant, who played the NBA for, I think, seven or nine years, I mean, it, it is an unbelievable highlight reel of his dunks. It's, it would make your head spin, especially in light of Division Three now. It was a little different entity back then. Um, so... You know, we just we, we had talent, and if teams took him away, we got great looks. If they took us away on the wings, our point guard was phenomenal. He would get in the paint and create problems. And I think probably at the end of the day is teams were more scared of Albert Gordon and Ricky Spicer than they were of Jeff Seifert and I. So we, we benefited from that because they were going to take away the inside and force us to make perimeter shots, and we were able to do it. So the, these are mostly spot-up shots. Were you, were you ever creating on the dribble, too, shooting some Steph Curry-type threes? or No. I was, I was good <laughs> at coming off screens and catching and shooting. In fact, I was, um, my, my dribbling was heavily restricted. Um, not as bad as, as some of my, uh, my friends. Uh, good story, a buddy of mine, Rob Lagerman, who played at uh, Marquette for Kevin O'Neill. And um, it was in the U.S. State of Day. O'Neill's comment was, if Rob decides to dribble, We've asked him just to punt the ball into the stands because we'll be back on defense. So it wasn't quite that extreme, but um, I think Vandermillen told me if I had to dribble more than twice, that I should just stop. So it was a little limiting, but he was, in retrospect, it was probably the right thing. <laughs> well, if you could accept that, you're okay with it. That's good. That's good. Did it get you in the gym to work on your skills a little bit more? I always worked on my skills and I think that, you know, that's, it's a different era there too. You know, we were always working on our shots. Um, you know, there's just a different premium on individual work and working on skills than there is now. So that was never, 
an issue. I love to go out and shoot, love, you know, it's summers going to the playground and just shoot jumpers for hour after hour. You know, one of my other favorite things that I read about you is you were the WIAC Scholar Athlete of the Year. You must take a lot of pride in that. Well, I, I think one of the, the things Division Three can do and, and why I'm an advocate of it is it allows you to be well-rounded. And, you know, we all know, you know, I know guys at scholarship schools and they're 100% basketball players. They get through their classes, but they're not doing extracurricular things. You know, I was able to really focus on school. I was the speaker of the student government Senate. I was on the Dean's advisory board. I was, uh, I wrote the bylaws for a student foundation organization that's still in existence. So in addition to the basketball and academics, I was able to do a wide range of things. And, and I think division three allows student athletes to do that because it's, it's a high level, it's competitive. We work hard, but you, you still have time to do those other things. Whereas in a scholarship setting, um, you most likely do not. And, and trust me, it's, that's not a criticism. If I were coaching at a division two or division one level, it, it's a different level of commitment. You know, you're getting paid to be at school and I think the expectations are somewhat different. And then after school though, you end up going overseas and playing in Denmark. Yep. What got you out to Denmark? Walk us through that. So I, um, in school, I was either going to go to law school or, become a teacher. And during the summers, I worked for a criminal lawyer, um, have some amazing stories. But after after that, the long and short of it was I, I thought coaching and teaching would be a better fit for me. Um, I, I enjoyed the legal stuff. I just couldn't see myself doing it for the next 30 years. So I went back to school in 1990 and was an assistant coach and got my teaching certification. And then that summer, um, through Bill Napton, the legendary coach at Beloit College, um, he had a connection in Denmark, and I was able to go over there and play. It was a great situation. I had an American coach, an American assistant coach. Uh, we had a really good team. Um, so you could have two Americans for some tournaments, only one for others. And most of the Americans over there were big guys. But I had the two best big guys in the country on my team. They were both on the Danish national team. Uh, so it, it was great. It was a great experience. I got hurt. Um, so it only lasted about six months, but while I was there, it was, it was a lot of fun. And it was interesting just to be able to focus on basketball, not have to do schoolwork, not have to worry about a part-time job, not have to worry about money. It's amazing what you can get done when that's your singular focus. So was that, I mean, you stayed out there for one year, right? Or how long did you stay out there? I was about, I was there about six months. I, I went out there, um, played, got hurt, came back and had surgery which was, you know, interesting with all, you know, healthcare and socialized medicine and all that. I, um, it would have taken me months to get into a, a clinic. So they sent me to a private clinic to be evaluated, which was amazing. It was all granite, amazing place, but it was going to be extremely expensive to have the surgery there. So the club decided that they'd rather fly me back home. I had surgery in the States, went right back. Um, I was out probably two weeks and was able to start trying to play again. Um, but it just... I, I basically had the microfracture surgery similar to Greg Oden where that bone surface just started to deteriorate early on. So I was just never able to play again without swelling and discomfort. So I came back in January. Uh, one of my cool experiences in life, I was in Germany flying back on German Unification Day, uh, which was very interesting historical time because uh, there was a lot of trepidation between the West and the East 
Um, the West was afraid that absorbing the East was going to be a, a huge financial issue. And it was also right before the Gulf War. Um, that started about, I think, a couple of weeks after I got back. So then were you kind of glad you were out of there then? A little bit. Um, there, there was a lot of, it was interesting in Denmark that the younger people did not like Americans, thought we were over-involved in everybody's business. The older generation loved Americans because obviously they weren't as far removed from World War II um, when we were seen more as a liberation force, obviously. So the, the political aspects were, were interesting. I remember sitting next to a woman on the plane who was a non-military chef on a, on a plane. And she was coming from the Middle East, and she told me, "quote unquote, there's going to be a war, and I'm not going to be there." So it, it was it was a really interesting time. No kidding. I mean, so then so then you're back in the states, and you jump right back into coaching, or not being a yeah, player anymore, we, but coaching. Yeah, my student taught that semester, and then the next summer, I got a head coaching job at Harvard, Illinois, a small town in northern Illinois. And I was a social studies teacher, head high school basketball coach. At, I think I was only 23 at that time, maybe 22. Um, so that, that was a great experience, too. I was there two years, and then I went back to Whitewater as Coach Vandermeulen's assistant. What was that transition like from going from being a player to coaching? You know, I had always coached. You know, even, you know, I coach youth football. Or I coach youth basketball. I'd, I'd always been involved in sports. My dad was a, a youth baseball coach for 33 years. You know, he was one of those rare guys who coached before he had kids involved, during the time he had kids involved, and after his kids were involved. You know, he just loved the games and, and loved the interaction with the kids. So I've always been around coaching. So it was an easy transition. It, what was difficult is, you know, at my, I went to James O'Craig High School, which was a, a powerhouse in the era I played. We didn't lose very many games. My whole career played in a state championship game. Oh. And then Whitewater, we were really successful, played in a national championship game. And then the school I went to was 124 the year before I got there. And, and I will never forget it. The first game we got beat, they kind of went back to the locker room. They were all joking, laughing, wasn't a big deal. And it was the first time I had ever been around a program that didn't expect to win and wasn't upset when they didn't. When we lost the game in high school, it was the end of the world. They'd turn off all the lights in the locker room. No one talked. I mean, it was a big deal. So that was a little bit of a culture shock to me. But that's when I really, it, you know, that was a lot of fun to try to build a culture there, um, build a work ethic, and, and create an expectation. And the second year we won, I think only the school's second regional championship in the school's history. Um, which I thought was a good turnaround, and we did it with younger kids that really bought in. It, it was a great community to, for me to be in because it was a working-class community, and those kids would do anything you asked them to do. They, they had great work ethic. You know, a lot of them had farm backgrounds, rural backgrounds, so work to them was, you know, playing basketball wasn't work, put it that way. Yeah, no kidding. And I mean, you, you enjoyed a lot of accolades in your short time there at high school coaching anyways. You went from Illinois basketball coaches – uh, Association District Coach of the Year, Northwest Herald Area Coach of the Year as well. I mean, did it did it run you away? Were you like, all right, I already accomplished everything I need to accomplish here. I want to go to college now, or how'd that all go down? No, I liked it there. You know, in you know, I enjoyed teaching. I enjoyed everything about it. it. Was it was a really it was a great community, awesome people, and you know, I think one of the reasons I've always enjoyed Whitewater is you know the people I'm around is a lot more appealing to me than where I'm at. And I've always, you know, Whitewater, I've always been surrounded by really high quality people and, 
We have supportive instructors and administrators and, and Harvard was very much the same way. I mean, it, it's a small town, but you know, I had a lot of fun. It, it was a, it was a great learning experience. I met a lot of great people. So I wasn't, you know, dying to move on or, or get out of there. You know, I was still trying to establish myself and coach Vandermillen. I actually had called him to see if he'd come and speak at my camp. And he said, well, I was going to call you anyway, because um, his assistant had retired. And that led me going to Whitewater. And then subsequently, I became the women's golf coach, which was a whole nother entity of itself, because um, I had never golfed before. I <laughs> did not want to do it. I uh, didn't have much of a choice. You know, if you know anything about baseball, my dad was a, a old school baseball guy. And baseball swings and golf swings were not compatible. <laughs> I was basically forbidden to golf my whole childhood. So that was an interesting development as well. Well, you did something right, though, on the golf side. You won two WIAC championships, right? Yeah, I think that was mainly luck. I had really good players. I mean, literally, and I, I'm not exaggerating, the, the first tournament I took my team to was the first golf tournament I had ever been to. Oh, and uh, it, what happened is they were going to retrain me, so they they uh, – got me with a woman at a local course who had played on the European tour, a really high level player. And she was going to teach me. And this was early June. And unfortunately her husband, the young age had a heart attack and she became unavailable. So I really had, you know, it was one of those things where we'll start, you know, July 1st and we, we'd never got it going, you know, understandably from her perspective. So I really had, my training was me reading golf books and trying to figure it out. And um, I was at least smart enough recruiting wise to know that I had to go get good players if we wanted to have any chance to be successful. But I would say that had uh, almost zero to do with me as a coach. At that point, I was a van driver. At least you're honest. No, I, you know me, <laughs> probably honest to a fault. Hey, you, coach of the year though. You did, you did something right. Recruiting is a big part of it. You did something right. Well, and, and, I, and I think one thing, and, and again, just dealing with the personalities that, you know, that's a big part of coaching is just balancing personalities and getting people to be together and play together. And I could do that. Um, but again, coach of the year was, I don't know. I don't think that was a great reflection on my golf knowledge <laughs> or anything else. All, what it was good for is then my friend took over and he was a PGA professional and a great player and they didn't win a conference championship for quite a while. So I could always just say, look, you know, when I coached, it seemed pretty easy. I'm not sure what the issue is with you. So it just gave me fodder to, to, to talk trash to him is probably the best thing that came out of it. Well, I wanted to go over some of your other accolades because clearly you have a lot of them. Four time WIAC coach of the year, three time Natty champ, two time as a coach, once as a player, three time WBCA division three coach of the year, two time coach of the year through D three hoops, two-time UPS Division Three Coach of the Year. I mean, you have all these crazy accolades. You're inducted into the Hall of Fame um, in 2019. Your players that you have coached, you've had uh, one National Player of the Year, five WIAC Players of the Year, two Scholar Athletes of the Year, seven All-Americans. Does that, does that blow your mind when I tell you all this? You know, I think no, because... I, I think I, I was in a really good situation. You know, most people, when they're young coaches, they most likely you're going to get a job where you're rebuilding or school hasn't been successful. And, you know, I played for and took over for a guy who was, who was local. He's from Madison. He played at Wisconsin. Um, he coached at North Dakota state. He was an assistant at Wisconsin. 
really smart guy, great coach. His dad was uh, in education as an administrator. So I had, I had great mentorship. And, and even in high school, every coach I had in high school is in a coach's hall of fame. In fact, you know, my main coach in high school, he's in the Wisconsin football, baseball, and basketball hall of fames. And, and that's something, you know, growing up in Janesville, the time I did, we were beyond lucky with the level of instruction we had. And, and as a kid, you don't know, I didn't, you know, I almost took it for granted. And then once I got into coaching and you get into other communities, I found out that my situation was very unique and, and not even my high school coaches. We had a great boys baseball program in Janesville. We won like the 13 year old championship, 15 year old championship. I was on a state championship team in baseball. And the coach we had was our, our Babe Ruth coach. He was from Alabama. And he was probably, you know, easily at the top three coaches I've ever had. And his attention to detail, his practices were, if you practice like him now, you would have zero kids playing. We practiced three hours. It was bunting, base running, first and third situations, cutoff situations. It, it was the level of detail and repetition was mind blowing, but, but we knew how to play and we didn't beat ourselves and, and, you know, technique, you know, playing catch to warm up. Like you just didn't go out there and toss the ball. Like there was a routine, you had footwork, you had release points and you did it right every time. And, and I learned a lot about fundamental aspects about teaching and how important those little things were. So the long winded answer is I, I think, the success I've had has been a result of the programs I've been in, the coaches I've had and the program I took over. He did not leave me, you know, he's not one of those guys that was running out of talent and decided to retire. He left me a really good team. I was interim my first year and we won the conference championship. Um, so he left me a full deck. And like I said, Whitewater's been a great school for sports. So we've had a lot of support. So I'm, I'm proud of what we've accomplished. I'm happy, but I think it was situationally a great situation for me. A, a common theme you keep bringing up throughout this whole interview has been uh, product of your environment, whether it's with students for the way they act to you in the classroom to, or to you how, you, how you've done so well with your coaching. I mean, you're definitely passing that on to Q. Q's a good guy. Only whitewater kid I know, though. So I, I guess I'm, I'm, being, I'm being nice right now. The only one you need to know, <laughs> other, other than Pat Miller. <laughs> uh -huh. So, so coach, you, you go on and you play, you're, you coach as an assistant for a little under 10 years. Then you take over as the head coach in 01 to 02 season. But then about 10 years later, you win your first Natty championship, right? 29 and four, first one since 89, since you won it as a player. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Well, it was, I mean, it was a process and, you know, the, the way I look at it, you look at, you know, if you go to the division one level, a school like North Carolina or Duke, they might have good enough talent to win the national championship eight out of 10 years. And even with enough talent, you have to get lucky. And, you know, Cordell knows that, you know, his senior year, we ran into a buzzsaw team, hit up crazy threes and we're shooting shots off the back of the rim, almost hitting the ceiling and going in. You need luck. You have to stay healthy. You have to have the right matchups. So even when you have enough talent, it's hard to win. And I was acutely aware of that. And I thought some of the teams we had when I was an assistant were talented enough to win. I didn't think we were technical enough to win. 
And I thought that because of their talent level, 90% of the time they were good or 80% of the time that, that they could win on talent, beating guys to balls, doing those things. But when it came to the highest level, you know, maybe not quite technical enough. And so when I became the head coach, that was one of my goals is to maintain the talent level and increase our technical understanding. Um, so we would, you know, eliminate, you know, maybe it's just two turnovers a game that are a difference or a couple more offensive rebounds, just try to find little things. And, um, you know, it was a lot of hard work. And when we won that national championship, it, it was a bit of a relief because we had, we had good teams. Um, 2009 was maybe one of the best teams I ever had. And we won, we went to Elmhurst in the first round. It was D3 referred to it as the bracket of death that year. There was about nine teams in the Midwest that were all great. You know, Platteville was great. Wheaton was great. St. Thomas was great. So we played Elmhurst and won in double overtime. And then we played the defending national champions, Wash U, uh, with their whole team back and lost in a one-possession game uh, in the second round of the NCAA tournament. And it, it, funny story, so Coach Edwards, their legendary coach, uh, I run, we're both speaking at a clinic in Chicago that spring, and they've won their second consecutive national championship. And he said, you know, I'm going to tell you this. I don't know if it's going to make you feel better or worse, but no one we played after you was even close to you. And I said, well, obviously, you know, that's going to make me feel worse. So I don't know why you do that. But he, he laughed. He was a great guy. But, you know, that was the reality of, of being in the Midwest is you could be a, a legitimate top four team in the country and, and play final four type of games in the second round. I think it happened this year with Oshkosh and, and North Central. I watched that game. Incredible game. So, you know, the frustration level was building. So to finally get through, we were fortunate to play at home. And then, you know, the comeback in the national championship game, we were pretty much, I think we were down 18 with 11 minutes to go or something ridiculous. And Cordell led a, a charge and we got back and won the game. So it, it just, it was relief. And, you know, I think it set the stage for those next couple of years to have some, some additional success. Now, there, there's a rumor that I, I didn't go to your school, so I don't know, but there's a rumor that you guys ran out the Badgers in a scrimmage. Is it truth to this story? And they don't want to play you guys ever again? I don't think there's truth to that story. There I, is I, it? I would not say we ever ran out the Badgers. We, we played Marquette during my tenure, and it was a close game at halftime. It was close until the last five minutes. Um, and part of those games, if and I understand this, it, they're not, we're not going in and beating Wisconsin or Marquette. That, that's not going to happen, no matter what. Uh, similar with Wisconsin, 2009, when we played the Badgers, and again, it was tied at halftime or a one-point game, and, and the game was contested until probably the last four minutes. Now, have there been guys from UWM, some of those schools that came to our gym maybe in the summer and played and got ran out? I think that's a safe assumption. Okay. That, okay. That makes sense. You know, the reason why I brought this up, I want to lead this into another question. What do you say to people who are looking down on D3 basketball or D3 athletes in general? You know what I mean? That, that, that's something that gets brought up a lot. I went to St. Thomas. I'm sure you deal with it a lot. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Well, we deal with it more now, and, and, and I, I think it, it's different. You know, 20 years ago, the landscape even in Division One and Division Two is different. Um, there weren't as many Division One schools. So, I mean, right now there's 350 Division One schools and 312 Division Two schools. And Division Three, there's about 440. And I think what's changed is 
when I came out of high school, going to a Whitewater, Stevens Point, Platteville, Eau Claire was more prestigious than going to, you know, even a Mankato State or Bemidji State or any of those schools. And I think with the emergence of AAU, um, just the, the emphasis on getting scholarships and being a scholarship player has made Division Three a harder sell, uh, without question. And you know, and I know this sounds self-serving because I'm at our level, but what I've seen over the course of my career is is guys making bad decisions and going to bad fits. You know, junior college is fine for some guys; it's a horrible environment for other guys. Um, even high levels, you know, I've known guys that have gone and played Division One, and just the constant you know, the constant um, pressure to lift, to work, the structure day in and day out, they don't function well. And, and I think what parents, AAU coaches, instead of looking strictly at level, they have to look at fit. You know, where do you fit in academically? Where do you fit in basketball-wise? Where are you going to have your best ex experience? You know, one of the things I do, I teach at Whitewater as well, and I deal a lot with youth sports, and I've done different presentations for different groups. And the reality is, is there is such a tiny percentage of, of any college basketball that's ever going to play professionally and, and that's ever going to play for an extended period of time or make enough money to live off of is even smaller. So at the end of the day, where are you going to get your education? Where are you going to have your best experience? Where are you going to thrive? And, and if you're good enough, they're going to find you, you know, like the Devin Georges or um, Terry Porters of the world, they're, they're going to find you if you're good enough. And, and you can accomplish that at Division III. Um, you know, it may be a little tougher. But at the end of the day, yeah, I think it's more about fit. And, that, and that's what people need to focus on. And right now they focus on scholarships. And that's why you see this crazy movement, you know, with the transfer portal. It's no longer about going somewhere. I'm going to be there four years. I'm going to work hard, you know, lift hard junior, senior year. I'm really going to contribute now. It's I'm going to go somewhere. If I don't play, I'm out. And it's never anybody's fault. So, you know, that, that the game has changed quite a bit. And, um, you know, I don't think it's positive, but that's, that's the way it is now. And, and how do you, you know, recruit a kid when you don't have a scholarship, you don't have money? I mean, academic, you can do that if the kid's a good, good academic kid. But, I mean, how, how do you do that? Well, you just, I think it's just like any, if you're selling anything. Is it's um, you what is good about what you have to offer? And I think you know I'm not going to bore you with the whole marketing scheme we have for Whitewater, but there there's a lot of great selling points. They're great schools. They're affordable schools. We have great proximity. Madison's close. Milwaukee's close. For, so, for those kids from those areas, you know that want their parents to see them play. That are tight knit with their families. That want to go to a a good mid-size affordable school, they're, they're attractive. And so for some kids, do you want to go to get a scholarship at Minnesota Crookston and be six hours from home or with financial aid, do you want to pay a minimal amount and stay close to home and go to Whitewater? Um, and I think it used to be more kids would stay home, but now with the pressure of, of getting scholarships and you, you guys know what I'm talking about. It's like a, a badge, you know, it, it, division three was never looked down on. Now I think to a degree it is. And I think a lot of the people who look down on it don't understand it and don't know how good the players are. So that constant re-education process has to take place to, so people understand the best Division three schools in the country play at a good Division two level. There, there's no question about that. And, and when we've had good teams, 
we've competed with, you know, division one's a huge division. You know, there, there's a light year difference between the worst division one team and the power five teams. So again, it's just trying to sell what may appeal to somebody and just being honest and finding a good fit. If we're recruiting guys from, you know, the suburban Chicago area, you know, Whitewater is a college town. It's a small town. There's not a Starbucks every 5,000 feet. So it's a different environment. So either you want that or you don't. So, you know, we just try to be upfront with guys, you know, sell what's positive and be honest with, with what they're getting themselves into. You know, um, a, a kid of yours, Eric Bryson wants to know, how do you know you have a good team, not just or, or a great team? What do you know? Because, I mean, you obviously said the talent level, but obviously there's something more than that with the, the cohesion there, there of everybody. You have to have a, a certain level of talent. You know, you're not going to go out and out-scheme people and out-trick people over a 30-plus game schedule and win at a high level. So without question, you have to have talent. Um, like I alluded to earlier, you have to have the right pieces, and then you have to have intangibles. And the intangibles are guys – accepting their role you know Cordell is a good example of that you know he had games where he was a primary scorer and then he had games where he'd have 11 assists and not score very much at all because he didn't care he, he was going to do what the defense allowed him to do what was going to help us win you know my team like I said you know different nights it was different guys you know shutting down this player you know we, we all did what we needed to do in, in order to to win and, and those are the intangibles so you have to have the talent you have to have depth, you have to get lucky, and then you have to have intangibles. And, and Eric Bryson is actually a good, a good example. You know, he, he's a kid, he was a good player, good skill, but his toughness and ability to guard one through four is, you know, desire to win made him different than most players at our level. You know, Alex Merg, you mentioned, and Patrick Suter, those two, you know, were probably the worst nightmare for any division. Oh, coach, you, you cut out there. Nonstop pressure. They were physical. Coach, coach, let's run it back a bit. But, you, uh, you said those two guys, and the, the internet's cutting out on you. So you were saying those two guys, they were the worst. So Alex, for. Alex, point guards, Alex Merg and Patrick Suter, because they would they were relentless in their ball pressure. And, and Merg, it, with intangibles, it, it was fun for him to make the other guy miserable. You know, if he could make the other point guard cry because he was bumping them, hitting them, making it hard for him to bring the ball up the floor, he was happy about that. He loved defense. He took pride in that. that that's a huge intangible, and, and, and it's not to be discounted. He literally took good point guards and made them non-factors, which, which is extraordinarily disruptive for any team. So, you know, you have Merg, who was physical and strong, banging on him for 94 feet, and then you bring in Patrick Suter, who was lightning quick, that would do the same. They wore guys out. So they, they were able to elevate above their talent because of those intangibles. And, and Bryson was right in that category too. Love it. You know, I, and I also want to touch on this. You two Natty champs. The first one, Cambrini College, made their run up. and They were up 18 points in the second half in the national championship game. Then I want to talk about two years later when you're coaching Whitewater to their fourth national championship in school history, second title in three years, the dynamic of that team and how nerve wracking that game was the last five minutes. If you could run it down between the two of them. You know, it's, it's interesting because the, the, the 2014 game, um, 
you know, it was never, I shouldn't say never. I'll tell you when it became nerve wracking because when, you know, coaching's like playing, like you get into a mode and that's what you're doing. You're not feeling the pressure. You're just doing what you do. And we had that game pretty much in control. They went to a zone and, and we were struggling against us. They had good length. Um, we, we did a really good job defensively early in the game, taking them out of their stuff. And as, you know, we got a little bit tired and they made some good adjustments, the game started to even out. Um, so Eric Bryson, that you mentioned, hit a big three uh, against their zone. That was critical. And then the last play of the game, uh, which was what, Q Sports Center play of the day, and I think it was one of the top five plays of March, which is pretty extraordinary with all the basketball played in March. So they go down and score to go up one. And, you know, we have an end-of-the-game play that we go through. And as a coach, you know, you go through the checklist in your mind. So I remember it was almost like slow motion. And does the right guy take the ball out? And that was K.J. Evans. So K.J. grabs the ball. So we're good there. Next thing is, does he throw it to the right guy? So does he lose his mind and try to throw it the length of the floor? Does he throw it to Merg? What does he do? Because obviously we want the ball in Q's hands. He threw it to Cordell, and they made a huge mistake because they allowed him to catch the ball moving towards the other end. So he had momentum instantly. So then my next concern was if they were going to double-team him, I probably would have had to call timeout, and there were two guys there, and he split them. And then that is the – once he got to half court, that's the only time I felt any nervousness because I knew he was going to get to the basket. I just didn't know if at time. And then he obviously got there. And, and I'll tell you one thing that was really interesting. So right after the game, we were in the press room and Cordell described the play in detail, like intimate detail. And I'm like, there's no chance. There's no chance he remembers it like that. And I went back and looked at the tape and it was exact. So you talk about a guy able to slow the game down. That was uh, a good indication of that. But um, it was just, it was an incredible finish. They were a really good team, really well coached, ran great stuff. And, you know, that's what's fun about coaching. You have your, your team's really good. The other team's really good. It's, it's blow to blow by blow. And then you get a victory like that. I mean, those are, you know, I feel really fortunate to have had those experiences because, you know, there's a lot of people who coach their whole lives. They're great coaches and they never get to experience that. You know, there's a ton of great coaches that are at schools where it's just, quite frankly, really hard to win. And so, you know, they just don't get to do those things. So I've always felt really fortunate to be part of those, those types of games and, and accomplishments. Have you ever had, uh, you know, offers outside of D3, so D2 and D1? I have. Um, and, you know, that's, that's been a thing. You know, I'm from Janesville, which is 30 minutes from Whitewater. Uh, my wife, the nurse really likes her job. We have a lot of family in the area, so a lot of a lot of the Division two opportunities didn't appeal for me for me for family reasons. Just you know, to you know, Western Minnesota or North Dakota or wherever didn't appeal to me. And and, and I, I like Whitewater. It's like I said, I think it's equivalent to probably it's probably better than a lot of the Division two jobs in the country. And then Division one, you know, going from three to one. I think that's changed as well. You know, Dick Bennett did it back in the day. Bo Ryan did it. I think it's much harder to do now. You know, it used to be you could kind of win your way out of Division Three, and I think that changed. Um, so didn't didn't have an opportunity at Division One. I, I would have had to have gone as an assistant, and and that's something that that didn't appeal to me. That, yeah, I, that was that, that. Go ahead, Q. 
I was going to say, yeah, that was a question from KJ. Uh, yeah, we were definitely curious about that and what hindered you from making the transition. But um, I have a very intricate question for you. If you can create an all-time Whitewater team, who would make the cut? That's a, that's a loaded question. Good, good luck with this one. Getting you in trouble, man. It's, it's impossible. I mean, there's, because, you know, like Cordell and KJ, you know, who are asking this question and, and want to be, be on the all-time team, they don't even know the guys we had even before I played. You know, we had Dwayne Johnson, who was an All-American at Marquette and came to Whitewater once he left Marquette. The, the rules were different. You, you could become academically ineligible at a Division One school and transfer to Division Three. So there was all kinds of talent. Um, so it, it's just, it's really difficult to compare eras. I mean, if I really sat down, I could probably give you a top 20, which I could do and I would never do because there's absolutely no point to it. It's just a, a personal thing. You know, none of us are going to take it, you know, to heart. We're just curious to, well, I was curious. This is actually my question personally. I just wanted well, to I feel like, I feel like that's um, untrue that you guys are not going to take it to heart. I think you absolutely <laughs> would take it to heart. I just want to hear it. How did you their place when you left off the, the all Kenosha team? I didn't take it to heart at all, honestly. Um, just because, it's I mean, I know the, the work that I've put in, you know, it's, it's an opinionated list, you know, to some extent, like, you know me, I, I could scare, I could care less if I score two points or 20 points. Like, well, as long as we win, that's, that's all that mattered at the end of the day to me. So any list, I mean, it doesn't matter. The, the public, they had their opinion on it. I've heard probably 95% of the people saying I should have been on it, but that their opinion doesn't validate anything. You did, you did take it to heart, but you've had enough validation from people who know that, no, you should be on the team that you're not that mad about because you know the list is not legit. It is what it is at the end of the day. <laughs> Mark, Mark, Mark Miller's opinion has never been validated or, you know, I've never took any offense to it. I wasn't ranked in the top 50 throughout my entire high school career, and I know I'm better than majority of that list. So, I mean, it is what it is at the end of the day. Yeah, thank, thank goodness for me, because if you would have been, it would have been a different deal. So you're not going to answer that question. You want me to pass that one. No, that there's no way I'm going to go down that rabbit hole. That's just that would be reckless. Is it safe to say that Chris Davis would make that top five? Top five? If you were to make a, a starting five out of the the players you've coached, I don't know. National Player of the Year. I think you squeeze him in at that four position. You can put him at you, the four. You guys don't understand. Like in the '70s, the late '70s, there were pros at Eau Claire, Women's Point. I'm NBA just talking about the players that you've coached. Oh, that I've coached. Yeah. Yeah, we can throw Davis in the top five. All right, all right, we're getting somewhere. One out of five, 20% of the way. <laughs> <laughs> Another question is, with the times changing, you know, sometimes if you don't change with the times, you get left behind. How have you been able to acclimate yourself as time has gone by with new coaching strategies? It's, it's, it's hard. And, you know, you try to read, um, they call the new generation, the like generation, because their, their whole existence is based on Instagram likes and social media likes, and they need constant affirmation. There's no question. It's different coaching now. Um, kids need more positive. 
you know, I was coached, all my coaches were old school. Like you did what you were told. You would not say, why are we doing this drill? If you rolled your eyes that you would pay a severe price, there, there was none of that. So, you know, I've had to change my approach quite a bit because it's quite frankly effective. You know, if you're running around screaming and yelling at kids, it's one thing if you're at a high level and you're recruiting high level guys and they know exactly what they're getting into. That's one thing. But at a level like ours, I just think it's counterproductive. So I think we've changed our approach, um, tried to be more positive. Um, I think it's one of the things that harder is kids are perpetually offended. You know, anytime you correct them, they're offended, they're upset. It hurts their self-worth. And that makes it hard to coach because teaching is inherently a little bit adversarial and it's a little bit negative because you're you're trying to get someone to do something either they can't do, they're not doing well enough, or they don't want to do. So you have to have that latitude to push people out of their comfort zone understand, look, this is how you have to fix your footwork. Like, like Eric Bryson, I'll give you an example. Getting guys to change their shooting mechanics is really hard because you have to be an old school rote learner and just spend hour after hour. And, and Eric used to catch the ball and he'd drop it to his knees. And that's obviously slows your release considerably. And I alluded to earlier, the shot he hit against Williams, he called the Robinson look on the, we're losing on the internet Williams. And prior to that year, he had gotten that hitch out of his shot and through. Coach, you there? We're, we're having some technical yeah. difficulties. You, you said he had uh, right. against Williams. Yeah, he, so he, he hit a three, cleared Duncan Robinson's hand by about an inch. And if he dropped the ball his old way, he never would have got the shot off. It was a critical shot. So he's, he's a throwback where he spent the whole summer getting that mechanic out of his shot. And it, it, it's rare to have guys do that. They just don't do the individual things that we used to do. So, you know, that's one of the challenges is getting kids to understand mechanics, how much time you have to spend, and how important they are. Because it's, it's an instant gratification society. They want things quick and easy, and those things are not quick and easy. They're, they're, over, they're durational, and they're difficult. And, and Eric was willing to endure that and go through that. You know, Cordell made a lot of advances on his game. So we've been fortunate to have guys that bought into that, but, but that is getting to be a more difficult sell uh, every year. Is there one kid that you've coached that you'd want to take the last shot in a game? There's a lot of them, to be honest with you. I mean, Chris Davis certainly is in that boat. Um, K.J. Evans in that boat. Q, um, his senior year, hit a bunch of game winners. How many did you hit, four or five? Yeah, I think it was like – it was a, a week that – I think we went to Eau Claire, had a game winner there, and then we went to Platteville and had a game winner there in the same week. Like, it, was, it was a pretty wild span. Um, so he's definitely in that category. Miles McKay. Um, Dustin Mitchell, you know, and again, I've been fortunate. I've had good players and guys you trust to put the ball into their hands at the end of the game. And part of that is, you know, once you've coached someone, you hope they make the right decisions. That's, you know, like one of the things that you see all the time now is guys trying to hit hero threes to get highlights that they can put on Instagram and win, win games that way, as opposed to attacking the basket, 
getting to the free throw line and making sure you win the game. We've lost a couple games over the last couple, couple years where guys just refuse to attack. And I think what's different is those guys I mentioned, they would get the ball where they needed to go and create a high percentage shot. So, you know, part of it, you trust them because they understand the game situations and what needs to happen for them to win. You know, like if Cordell pulls up against Williams and tries to hit a hero shot, you know, that decreases our percentage chance of winning significantly. You know, whereas he attacked the basket, he got fouled, put ultimate pressure on the defense. You know, that's a credit to his decision making. You know, Coach, we got a – oh, go ahead, Q. No, I was going to say um... – one of the last few questions we had, it was a fast round using categories of players you've coached. So this is from Alex Edmonds. Best offensively, best defensively, most athletic, laziest, biggest asshole, and biggest pussy. Oh, jeez. So, all right, let's start one at a time. What's the first one? Best offensively. Well, we'll do like, I don't know, you can say three, four, and then we'll, we'll jump to the next one just to keep it, keep it going. It's hard, you know, because, you know, Miles McKay was explosive offensively. Matt Goodwin was good. Um, Dustin Mitchell was good. He was a post guy, so they're different categories. Um, this is bad, too, because I'm going to leave somebody out that's going to be obvious, and I'm going to feel bad. So we'll just, everyone, we'll just go everyone, everyone can't make it. We, we understand that. No, I know. So I, I would say those three um, were pretty high-level offensive players. Defensive. Yeah. Uh, Merg was the best defender. Um, Bryson was close. Um, again, Dustin Mitchell with his size and athleticism. The, the other guy that was a shockingly good post defender because no one could move him was Chris Davis. Really, <laughs> I'm telling you, he's underrated because he was too, he was wide and he was strong and guys had a hard time moving around him. You literally had to like face up and go around him. There was no bumping Davis. No, you couldn't move him off a spot. Most athletic. You were pretty athletic. Um, Miles was athletic. Uh, Equan Arts, who's back next year, is extraordinary athletic. He's probably had some of the biggest highlight reel dunks we've had in quite some time. I've, I've seen a few. That, that kid is bouncy. Yeah, I mean, he can just, like, jump up in the air and do a flip and land on his feet, crazy stuff like that. Laziest. Not answering that. Come on, coach. No. No no upside to that. <laughs> Biggest asshole. Oh God. I mean, that's hard because like what do you how do you categorize that? I mean, I think there are some guys with some edge, you know. That that is that is a tough one from Edmonds. All right, we'll move on. Biggest pussy. There's no chance I'm asking answering that one. <laughs> It's worth a shot. All right, uh, best team you've coached. This is also from Edmonds. You know, I think, I mean, the teams that win championships have to be the best, right? Because they ultimately got it done. I, I think probably the most talented team I had was the 2009 team. You know, I think they, they were a possession of two away from being a national championship team. So I think 12, 14, and 2009 were the most talented. And then uh, wrapping things up, if you could do everything again, what would you do differently if you would do anything differently? You know, I think in, in retrospect, knowing what I know now, um, I had some opportunities after probably three or four years to move on that if, if I didn't want to spend my career at Whitewater, 
then I would have moved on earlier instead of trying to win win my way out to a, to a different situation. Was that the original goal? Did you want to go D1? You know, I, I, I just wanted to be successful. You, you know, I, I, one of the things I always tried to do, I, you know, and, and you know in this business, you know, there's, there's a lot of guys, their only concern is their next job. You know, they spend more time calling coaches and search firms and they're politicking. And, and that's just, I, I just, I'm not good at that. I don't like doing that. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I find it a little disingenuous. So that, that's never anything I wanted to do or put in, put very much time into. I just, I wanted to focus on what I was doing. And if I could have success and, and do things well, then opportunities would present themselves. And I think, you know, early, like I said, early on, was probably when I should have gone if I was going to do that. But once, once you have kids, you know, now it's a, it's a different deal. Do you want to uproot them? Do you want to move to a community where you're, you're not connected? And, and again, you know, there's a lot of guys that I know that have jumped around their whole careers. Uh, that just never, that didn't appeal to me. You know, I like where I lived. I liked where I was coaching. So then it became, it would have to be a really good offer for me to, to move on. And that just didn't present itself. You know, Coach, I want to thank you for your time and your insight. It was unbelievable. And I want to congratulate you on 20 years of a head coach. Yeah, Congrats. thanks. Man, that's unbelievable yeah. achievement. You're a hell of a coach, and you have had a great career. You're successful. You've accomplished your goal. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, appreciate it, Coach. All right. Thanks, you guys.